0: Welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here uh, at The Grove. So glad that you guys are here with us this morning. Um, we are continuing on and actually finishing up our study through the uh, Samuel narrative, so the books of First and Second Samuel. We began this journey uh, at the beginning of summer last year in 2018 and are now in the final chapter here in 2 Samuel 24. So this was supposed to be the start of a new sermon series, but thanks to Dorian, we had church canceled a couple weeks ago. So we're pushing that here because I'm a man of closure. I can't just leave something undone. I have to hug people goodbye and say goodbye. I can't just walk out the door. So I'm not Michael Scott in the office who just leaves. I have to say goodbye to people. So we have to say goodbye to second Samuel this morning. I couldn't just walk out the door. So here we are this morning, second Samuel 24, the other sermon that I was going to preach, be a good neighbor and you're a missionary in your neighborhood love them for Jesus. There is the summary of the sermon. So we'll move on in 2nd Samuel 24. We continue now. It's on page. You grab one of the Bibles that's in the chairs. It's on page 285 and 286. Uh, 285 and 286, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That is our gift to you. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. So we'll be in chapter 24 and then verses one through 25, the entire chapter here this morning. And so uh, a quick reminder through First and Second Samuel, this has been the story of God establishing his king for his people you had this first king named Saul who rose to power and then turned away from God. So God then anoints and chooses this other man, God's chosen king, this man named David. Goliath is killed, David runs for his life, David becomes king, David has an affair, David kills a guy, and then the rest of 2 Samuel is the judgment of that sin. That's First and 2 Samuel in a nutshell. And so it moves through kind of chronologically up to chapter 20. But then we've seen chapter 21, 22, 23, and now 24, you have kind of these pieces, uh, these stories that are pieced together. Uh, It's no longer chronological. Uh, Some people feel as though it's out of place. It's just like random stories put in there as an epilogue or an appendix. But as we've seen so far, and we'll see especially today, there is an intentionality that God's spirit moved through the narrator of 2 Samuel to place these stories here for a reason. And this one in particular, while as we read through it, may seem like this random story. in this grand narrative, it actually sets the stage perfect for what God is about to do, because the book of Second Samuel is all about all about a king, a kingdom, a covenant, and eventually God getting ready to move in permanently with his people as a temple is about to be built. And it sets the stage for that as we look forward. So as we dive in this morning, we 'll be reading through three kind of uh, general points we'll see. first, in the, this chapter is geared around three different things, and those will be our three points. So first we 'll see a census then we'll see a plague and then we'll see a threshing floor. All of that hopefully will make sense by the end of the morning. So a census, a plague and a threshing floor. And how in the world does all of that wrap up this story in first and second Samuel? So first, let's look through the first, we'll see a census and that's in verses one through 10. So let's turn, we'll read as we go along. So we'll read here verses one through 10 and then get started with our first point. So second Samuel 24, verse one. Now, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again. And he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of his army, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the troops so I can know their number. Joab replied to the king, May the Lord, your God, multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are while the Lord, the king looks on. But why does my Lord, the king want to do this? Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army left the king's presence to register the troops of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in a south of the town in the middle of the valley and then proceeded toward Gad and Jazir. They went then to Gilead and to the land of the Hittites and continued on to Danjon and around Sidon. They went to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. Afterwards, they went to Negev of Judah at Beersheba. And when they'd gone through all the, whole, all the land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the king the total registration of the troops. There were 800,000 valiant armed men from Israel and 500,000 men from Judah. Now, David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops. He said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. So I want to pause there. This is where we begin now, as we see here. David takes this census, this registration. He goes and tells one of his commanders, go and take a census of the army. And at the end he goes, oh, I can't believe that I did that. So there's a number of things that we've got to answer here at the very beginning that feel a bit confusing. And first, I don't know if you noticed it, the first question that came up in my mind at least is reading verse one. The narrator drops us right into a story, right? The very beginning of the chapter, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again. Well, why? What did they do? We don't know. The narrator doesn't tell us. There's something Israel had done that was stupid, just like we always do, and God's anger burden against them again. So what happened? Look then at the second half of that verse. It says, he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. It's a strange sentence, isn't it? God is angry at the people who have once again done something dumb like each of us. But what God does then is it says he stirred up David <clears throat> against the people to go and count, to go and take a census. And at the end of this, David then feels his sin, but God was the one that stirred him up. So what is going on here? Well, this problem is complicated by the fact that there's a, a parallel account to this in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And in 1 Chronicles 21, it says this in verse one, that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So something complicated just got more complicated, right? If this was a Facebook status, it would be complicated. So what is happening here? Is this an inconsistency within the Bible? That's uh, what many people will point to, particularly those in uh, Muslim faith will point this out and go, look, see, this says God did it. This one says Satan did it. Can't trust the Bible. Well, which is it? Well, I think that one thing that we see within this is that we begin to see God and his sovereignty, particularly over forces of evil and even Satan himself. What do I mean by that? Well, I want us to pause here and look at another story within the Bible that perhaps gives us a bit of a clearer picture, right? Was it Satan or was it God? And I think what I would say is it was a little of both. And here's what I mean. Looking at the story of Job, Job was a man who was righteous, doing great, had a lot of good stuff going for him. And at the very beginning of Job, we get this situation where Satan comes to God and kind of bargains with him. So in Job chapter one, verses nine through 12, I wanna read through these real quick. It says that Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in land. Remember, this is Satan talking to God but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. There's a couple of things we see there. First of all, we see that Satan couldn't touch Job apart from God allowing it. The other thing too, Satan goes, hey, God, if you would just strike him and take everything he owns, then he would curse you. And God doesn't go and strike him. What then does God turn on and say? You then now can go. Everything he owns is in your power and you can now go and give it your best. Do the best you can and watch what happens. So Satan then leaves and he goes and there's incredible tragedy and affliction that hits Job. Satan's the one that does it. But how does Job respond in that chapter later on in verse 21? I think he answers rightly when Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Satan was the one who acted and God allowed it. So Satan acted uh, directly, God allowed it indirectly. The Lord was taking, the Lord was giving away, but he wasn't the one directly doing it. So was it one or the other? And I would say both. And we see here in the same sense in which God then stirs up David by allowing Satan to do it. And we see then God in his sovereignty has complete control over every single thing in this universe. And friends, there's an incredible amount of comfort that comes from that, right? There's questions that come from that as well, which I totally understand. Those questions you have about how God's sovereignty interacts with our lives, then please email me questions and I would love to talk about it. But this morning, I wanna press in on the comfort that we have from that, because I want us to think about the alternative. If God wasn't in control, And instead, God was just kind of crossing his fingers and hoping for the best, right? I think about um, here in Orlando in particular, I don't know why it's more so here than any other place I've ever grown up in, but so many neighborhoods have those neighborhood gate guard people at the front that will not let you in unless you're on the list. I understand it's a good thing, but man, it is so annoying, and they, they, they have so much power and authority to be able to grant, oh, you want to come in? Well, only thee who is on my list may enter. And, they, and you come up and you've got to be on the list for you to be able to go in. And the only way for you to get in is if someone has put you on the list and allowed you to come in. Friends, in our lives, there is a gate, or as Job puts it, a hedge around each and every one of our lives. And there is a guard at the front of that gate. And the enemy And any of his forces, any of his demons cannot enter in if they're not on that list. God in his sovereignty is completely in control of every moment of it. The Christian life is not this battle of good versus evil, let's cross our fingers and see who's gonna win in the end. It is not duality, it's not black and white, yin and yang. God is in control and he is sovereign and Satan is just one of his little minions that has to do his bidding. Satan cannot go outside of God's control or his will. And that kind of control, that kind of sovereignty brings comfort with it because it means this, that there is no evil or brokenness or temptation that can touch you that has not first passed through God's good, sovereign and permissive will and will be held according to his divine limitations. Because he's in control, it means that he can then keep his promise that whatever he lets through the neighborhood gates and into your life is going to be used both for our good and for his glory. And so we see God sovereign here at the very beginning, then allowing Satan to come and incite David to go and commit this sin of counting the people. So that's then the second question or kind of problem that for me arises as I read through this, I go, David, what was the big deal? What was so wrong about taking a census? He just wanted to know how many troops he had. And yet we get to the end in verse 10 and his conscience troubled him. And he says, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I've been very foolish. Please take away your servant's guilt. I don't know, I read through that and I go, David, it doesn't seem like you're, um, are you just overly emotional, David? Are you a, what? you're an ENFP? Like what's what's the deal here, man? You're just feeling too much. You've got too much guilt weighing on you. It doesn't seem like your feeling and emotions matches the crime. So what's the deal? Well, there's, uh, the text doesn't tell us exactly why taking a census was a sin. There's some clues we see that I think gives us an answer. And I'll tell you what, at least I think, I wouldn't say this is inspired because the text doesn't say it, but as we begin to piece through these answers, I think we can see. And particularly look at verse three, whenever Joab, his general responds to him, he tells him, Joab, go and take a census. And Joab says, David, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are. Why, my Lord, the King looks on, but why does my Lord, the King want to do this? Joab is pressing him and saying, David, why do you want to count the people that you have? Don't you know that God could multiply those troops a hundred times in a moment while you're even looking at them? And I think in Joab's correction here, I think Joab is telling David, David, Don't count your troops and then at the end, step back and go, man, what an awesome army we have. Look at all the people I've got. 800,000 valiant men in Israel, 500,000 in Judah, 1.3 million people here who are willing to fight for me. I look around these other nations, they don't have that kind of army, we're good. And I believe what David was doing in this census was a desire to want to count up how much he had and then to be able to find safety and security in that. in the thing that he could control and in his own plan. And Joab is pressing him, so David, David, our numbers don't matter. You realize that because God is on our side. And so it doesn't matter how many people we have, he could multiply it a hundred times in a moment. And David, don't you remember first Samuel? God didn't even use an army. He used the Ark of the Covenant to defeat the Philistines. He actually doesn't even need us. So don't look and try to find safety and security in your plans or what you can control, but find safety and security in God and his promises. And he was pressing him on that. You see, I think that David's sin wasn't that he counted. I think his sin was why he counted. It was how he felt whenever he heard that number, how he breathed a sigh of relief. He was safe, he was secure. And I think that was his sin. He thought a strong army was safer than a strong God. Friends in us, in our lives, how often do we trust in our plans? rather than in God's promises. We may not have an army in front of us to count, but how often do we check to see how big our savings account is? How strong our portfolio might be? Whether or not we have a detailed and actionable five to 10 year plan, or if we're either in or working towards being in a relationship, looking for things that we can control and plan and organize and shift to feel this feeling of safety and security so that when we have it, oh, we just feel a little bit safer. And we like to put our hope and our security in our plans. Friends, listen, none of those things in and of themselves are wrong. So don't hear me say that. Just like it wasn't wrong for David to take a census. There was instructions in Leviticus on how to take a census. It wasn't wrong to do that. The problem wasn't that he had an army, is that the army had him and had his heart. And friends, it's the same with us. It's not wrong to have a savings account and to store up money. Proverbs tells us to look at the ant and how an ant gathers up food for the winter. It's wise and good to do that. The problem is not if we have it, but whether or not it has us. Are we looking to it for safety and security? Are we looking at our plans? Are we trusting God and his promises? knowing that he is better at making this thing work than we are. Friends, God's promises are greater than your plans. That's one of the big warnings that we hear at the very beginning of this text. God's promises are greater, more trustworthy, more secure and safer than your plans. And what I promise you is you're gonna walk out that door and struggle to believe that because we like to feel we've got it in control. This is my hypothesis. I don't know if this is true or not, but I think it is. I think that's the reason why people don't like to fly on airplanes. Now they get up there and they go, well, I don't have control of the plane." I have to trust someone else and it's such a life or death situation and I don't have any control. And I go, listen, the whole problem I think with humanity and Western evangelicalism is that we believe that we have this illusion of control and that if somehow, if we're on the road driving, that that's safer than a trained pilot who's given his entire life to get you safely from point A to point B, that that's somehow not as safe. But if we get in our car and we're texting and talking and uh, Snapchatting, uh, we just wanna be behind the reel because then we have control and we're safe. And friends, it's the same within our lives. We make a mess of our lives when we're in control. And God is so much better at it than we are. And so stop trying and trust in him and believe that his promises are greater than your plans. So David trusted in the numbers rather than in his God even though God was the one that allowed him to be tempted to even do this thing in the first place. God is sovereign. Satan is tempting and David is responsible. Each of those three things are true in this text. So how did it play out after that? How does God respond to David's sin? Let's pick it up now in verse 11, as we see now a plague in verses 11 through 17. So when David got up in the morning, the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer, go and say to David, This is what the Lord says. I'm offering you three choices. Choose one of them and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David, told him the choices and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come on your land, to flee from your foes for three months while they pursue you or to have a plague in your land for three days? Now consider carefully what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. David answered Gad, I have great anxiety. Please let us fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great. But don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the appointed time. And from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. Then the angel extended his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it. But the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, Withdraw your hand now. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, Look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. And so here we see then God's response to David's sin. We see a plague. And remember, to pull that back even further, this was God's judgment through David for the people who had originally sinned against God in the first place. So God, again, using even the sin of the people for his own uh, divine will and glory, even though he wasn't the one that made it. God, again, sovereignly is using it all for good and for glory. And so we see then God's judgment in response to David. And that's often where it gets highlighted, right? We read this text and one of the things that we walk away with is, oh, look at God's judgment, God releases this plague on his people. He gives David three choices, right? Either being on the run from his enemies, having a famine or having a plague for three days. And he gives David choices. One of these things is going to happen, David. You pick which one it is. And we see God's judgment, or in my Bible, the title is David's punishment. And that's often what's highlighted. But friends, when we read through it, God's judgment isn't what's highlighted in this chapter. It may be the thing that stands out at first while we read through it because it's the most kind of extreme, it's the most supernatural. But friends, the author doesn't want us to see that primarily. No, God's judgment is there because God cannot just wink at sin, right? We want God who is a good God and a good judge, not someone who just turns away from evil. And so God, yes, meets David and punishes his sin. God's wrath is set on David and all the people of Israel who sinned against him. And God's judgment is unleashed. And a plague sweeps over the country. 70,000 men die. But the story doesn't end with the end of the plague. And the story doesn't even end in three days. God doesn't even get to three days. Did you notice that? God tells them there'll be three days of judgment. There'll be three days of a plague that's gonna sweep over the land. But look at verse 15. It says, the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the third day. No, until the appointed time. That God had a different time in which he stopped it. How do I know he stopped it? Because we see that in the next couple verses. The angel of the Lord was continuing the plague and God said, stop, don't continue. And he stops it short. His mercy holds back his judgment. And this should be the thing that as we read through the story, we are amazed at how a God would be merciful to a people who deserved judgment. And David knew this. He knew about God's mercy, right? This is the thing that's highlighted. David knew it by experience in his own life, how God had treated him in his sin, how God had treated his people in their sin. David knew God to be a merciful God. He knew him to be full of mercy, which is why when David's presented with the three option, David says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord because then I know that there will at least be mercy. He says, I've had people chase me. And I know what's in man, but let me fall into God's hands because there is mercy in him. And I love it. He says that his mercies are great in verse 14. That's what drove David's heart. That even in sin, even in right judgment and punishment at the forefront of David's mind was this truth. God, your mercies are great. And so even whenever he knows he's done something wrong, he can run to his father. And friends, that's such a beautiful illustration and a barometer as far as how much we understand who God is, is whenever we mess up. Do you run away from God or do you run to him? It's the difference whenever you get in trouble. Do you feel like you have to try to figure out something to tell your dad to try to explain what happened or do you pick up the phone to call him because you're in trouble and say, dad, I need your help. Friends, David knew the heart of God. And whenever he fell, he ran to him because he knew that his mercies are great. Friends, do you see God as merciful? Do you see him as full of mercy? Or do you believe his mercy to kind of be an exception to his character and not an expression of it? We go, God, yeah, you're kind of, uh, you're up there. you're, You're kind of mean and controlling and distant at the very least. And every now and then you're merciful. Do we see his mercy as an exception or do we see it as an expression of his heart and his character? Right, yesterday, we were, Leah and I were getting stuff ready around the house. We get ready to go to Israel for 10 days. We leave right after church today to drive to Mississippi and then hop in a plane tomorrow to fly to Tel Aviv. We'll be in Israel for 10 days. So we were walking around the house, getting stuff ready. So I'm walking around and as I'm walking around the corner, I see in these little bushes, there's some weeds growing up. And at the end of these weeds are these prickly little things. I don't know if you've seen these things. They are the bane of humanity. They're awful. And they stick to anything. It's unbelievable. I don't know what is on these things. I don't understand how we haven't figured out something to replicate it because no matter what it sticks to, it is not coming off. You, You walk like 15 feet away from it and somehow it ends up on your pant leg and you can't get off of it. It's prickly, it's sharp. There's like a million of them and they're all over the place. Our, our dog's a four and a half pound Yorkie poo. He's terrifying, so be careful. But every time he goes outside, whenever these weeds are there, he'll come back in, they're all over his legs. And so I'm walking around the house, getting stuff ready. And I see some of these weeds popping up. And I notice them, I go, oh, I'm gonna go ahead and get these. So they don't just blow all over the yard, These little prickly things. So I grab the weeds, pull them up and go and put them in the trash can. Later, Leah was walking around with me and said, Hey, I saw some weeds back in the corner. Would you mind going? I said, Oh, you mean going and pick them up and throw them in the trash can? I already did that. I already handled it. And Leo was shocked a bit because I was aware. And if you know me at all, you will know that awareness is an exception to my character <laughs> and not an expression of it. She was surprised and right, I was surprised that that happened. But friends, God in his mercy is not surprising. God in his mercy is an expectation. It is an expression. It is who he is. And though our sins may be many, friends, his mercy is more. And we can lean in and we can trust him. God's mercy drives him to act. I love that. Do you see that in this passage? God's mercy moves him forward. It's what causes him to relent, what causes him to stop the judgment. And so we can throw ourselves into his hands, even in, especially in our sin, because that is true, that our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So God in his mercy holds back his judgment here. But where did he stop it? Well, the text gives us an incredible amount of detail to answer that very question. Look now at verse 18 as we see where it stopped at a threshing floor, verses 18 through 25. Now Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up now and set an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. David went up in obedience to Gad's command just as the Lord had commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So he went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, why has my Lord, the king come to his servant? David replied to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so the plague on the people may be halted. Now Arana said to David, my Lord, the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arana gives you everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, may the Lord, your God, accept you. Now the king answered Arana, no, I insist on buying it from you for a price. For I will not offer to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord was receptive to prayer for the land and the plague on Israel ended and there it is there's how second Samuel wraps up this story of David seeing somehow the angel of the Lord who is bringing the plague stopping the judgment stopping the plague and the place where that angel was stopped was just outside of Jerusalem just outside the city walls and he looked and it was right at this threshing floor And so Gad, the prophet, the seer told him, go then where the plague was stopped and by that threshing floor, build an altar and offer sacrifices to God. And David knows why in verse 21, he wants to go there so that the plague on the people may be halted. And we see David comes as he comes here to this threshing floor and we see three things. We see the price that's paid, the sacrifice that's made and the foundation that's laid. It all rhymes and I'm really excited about it. Verse the price that's paid. I love this in verses 22 to 24, do you hear it? Aaron comes to him and says, you wanna buy this place? Listen, you're the king, I'm gonna give you everything. I'll give you the land, I'll give you the oxen, I'll give you the, um, the, the threshing sledges, everything, it's yours. May the Lord accept you. But how does David respond? Did you hear it? In verse 24, he said, no, I'm not gonna just take it. I insist on buying it from you for a price. Why? because I will not offer to the Lord, my God, offerings that cost me nothing. David knows the truth of a relationship with God and that following Jesus, uh, following a relationship with Jesus that costs us nothing is worth nothing that there is a cost, there is a burden as we come then to be able to offer something, to be able to follow God and not to be able to earn anything from him, but because we come and there is going to be something that we have to give up to follow him whether we worship in worship, whether in giving, whether in our lives, whether in our plans, whether our futures, if we just follow after what it is we want to do and we just kind of sprinkle God in along the way, then friends, that is not Christianity and that is not biblical religion because our hearts are bent away from God. And if we just expect church or the Bible, if we just read through the Bible and the Bible just affirms everything we already believe and feel, then you are not reading the Bible. Because God's spirit and God's word and God's truth is going to rub up against us and at times pull us in the exact opposite way that we're headed because we are all sinful and we all fall short of God's glory. And so we need to consistently be coming up to God's word and asking God, what in my life do I need to give up to follow you? Because I know that I'm not doing it perfectly. And we could not just come to God and offer him a relationship that costs us nothing. Friends, what relationship do we have that costs us nothing? Relationships don't work that way. And if they do, come talk to me afterwards because you're being terrible in that relationship. They don't exist to serve us and especially in a relationship with God. And David knew that, that worshiping God isn't just cost nothing. And so he refused to do it and paid that price to be able to purchase that deed. That not only was the price paid, but then also a sacrifice was made. So he purchased the deed for that threshing floor to be able to build an altar and offer a sacrifice. Why, why did he do that? Well, he says in verse again, 21, so that the plague on the people may be halted. You know, our eyebrows might raise a little bit because we go, wait, God already halted the plague. Why is David trying now to offer a sacrifice to halt it again? Did it start up again? What's going on here? And what we remember is that God and his mercy stopped the plague, but God's wrath and his judgment was still there. And so David knew he understood what God was teaching his people through Leviticus, that sin demands death. That at the end of the day, it will either be you or something in your place that will have to answer for sin, a substitute in your place, that the plague was stopped, God's mercy held back his judgment, but God's wrath against sin still remained. And there had to be some sort of sacrifice made to appease that judgment, to appease that wrath, or to use a theological word, there had to be propitiation. That word propitiation just means a wrath appeasing sacrifice because sin demands death. David understood this and so he bought the threshing floor. He builds an altar and he offers a sacrifice to God and what happens? Verse 25. The Lord was receptive to prayer for the land and the plague on Israel ended. David offers a propitiatory sacrifice and a plague that was killing the people of God ended. Now again, this seems like a random place for this grand narrative to conclude through 1st and 2nd Samuel. A threshing floor? a Jebusite and an altar? sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Why would the author and narrator conclude it this way? Right? If we were doing it, we might've thought the end of this would have concluded with this some epic battle, right? like the end of Lord of the Rings or some uh, expansion of the kingdom or a great war, or maybe even the building of the temple. Right? We saw a hint of this in 2 Samuel seven, God said, Uh, David said to God, God, I don't want you to have to live in a tabernacle that you set up and tear down anymore. I want you to be able to live in your own house. That's worthy of your name. I want to build for you this house, this temple. And this temple was the center point of Israelite, Israelite worship. And we thought maybe, maybe then it would end with the building of the temple from 2 Samuel 7, but it doesn't. It ends with this altar. It ends with this threshing floor. And it seems like a strange place to land until there's a detail later on in 2 Chronicles that unlocks why this is so important. And we see then thirdly, the foundation laid here. And the detail is this in 2 Chronicles 3, 1, that Solomon, who's David's son, begins to build the Lord's temple. He begins to actually build the temple. Well, where does he do it? In Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where, where is that? It is where the Lord had appeared to his father, David, at the site that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornand, aronas is different names for the same person. When Solomon goes to build the temple, he builds it on this very place. David here in 2 Samuel 24 purchases the deed that God's house is going to be built on. It sets the stage, lays the foundation and prepares for God to now more permanently move in and put roots down in the midst of his people of course, the book ends in the most significant way possible, that David purchases that deed. Now, he didn't realize it, but when he purchased the, this threshing floor, he laid the foundation of God's temple. Again, this was the transition of being in this tabernacle, setting up and tearing down every day, not too dissimilar from what we do every Sunday. They had poles, they had tents, they set it up, they walked around, they take it down, set up, tear down, So Ops, Grove Ops isn't new. It was way back in Leviticus. And the people, particularly David said, God, you deserve something better. We don't want you to live in tents. Your name is beautiful. It's holy. Let's build you a house that's worthy of your name. And it then won't be set up and torn down. It won't be moved around. It will be permanent. It will be right in the middle of God's people. It will be there that God's presence dwells. And the temple in and of itself is this representation of God living with and dwelling amongst his people. That was the significance of it. It wasn't just a location. It wasn't with how beautiful or ornate it was. It wasn't even with the sacrifices or the the artifacts that were there. It was God dwelling in the midst of his people. And that was unheard of. And that's what made the temple so significant. And so what we see here in 2 Samuel 24 is that David, as God's covenant king, paid a price and offered a sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath and secured for his people, a more permanent dwelling place for their God in their midst. What a significant thing for David to do. But we also begin to now feel the weight of this passage and realize that this passage is pointing us to a much better king and a much better kingdom and a much better temple. As we begin to look forward to not David, but to the son of David not to a king, but to a better king. As we see Jesus in John 1 says that he was born and he dwelt among us, that God, the word made flesh dwelt among us. And that word dwelt in the Greek, it's not dwelt, it's actually literally the word tabernacled that God then set up his house in the midst of his people. That's what Jesus came and did. And as he lived and dwelt among us, Jesus then lived a perfect life and he died a death that we deserved. And there on the cross, the punishment that he experienced wasn't, wasn't nails, it wasn't a whip, and it wasn't crucifixion. The greatest punishment that he bore was the wrath of God in our place as he shielded sinners with his blood. I was at Disney a couple of weeks ago and it began to rain, as it does every day in Orlando. And I saw outside of one of the buildings this dad who was standing over his daughter. She was maybe two or three. And I watched as the rain covered him and didn't touch his daughter. And I just couldn't help but see a beautiful image of what Christ does for all those that are in him as he stands over us and shields us from the wrath and he absorbs it in our place. But unlike the rain, it wasn't just falling on whoever and it wasn't worth anything. No, the wrath that he absorbed was meant for us and we deserved it. We earned it, but he stands over us and he shields us. And then he died. But friends, he didn't stay dead. And three days later, he walked out of the tomb that he was laid in. He then ascended, and one day he is returning. And when he returns, he is bringing with him that perfect kingdom that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. And then we will see our king forevermore who brings his kingdom forevermore. And in that kingdom, there will be no pain. There will be no tears. There will be no death, and there will be no sin. There will be memories that... That will be harder and harder for us to remember with each passing millennia as we gaze at the Lamb who endures forever. And we will gather around that throne and praise the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the perfect King, the better King, the humble King, the Forever King, the Savior King, as every knee is bowing and every single tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, as we praise his name forever, and we will stand in God's presence, then face to face as friends, as family, and as his people, as he then fully and perfectly dwells with us. The narrative arc of the Bible will then be complete as he will be our God and we will be his people, a holy and perfect God who has now made a way to dwell with his redeemed and glorified people in that new and better Jerusalem. And friends, the plague of sin and death may follow us up to the gates of that heavenly city but it cannot follow us in. And it's in that day that we will then live forever with him and experience the joy and the life and the hope that Christ has purchased. Friends, as we look and we see the way the Bible ends with that kingdom in the second to last chapter in Revelation 21, hear the way that it talks about it and hear the way it focuses on God dwelling with his people. Then I heard, John writes, a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And that's the kingdom that we're looking towards. That's the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. That's the better king. That's the thing that 2 Samuel is preparing the way for us to look to and see. But as we look at that kingdom, we may ask them, well, if 2 Samuel ends with this looking forward to the temple, wouldn't we be expecting a temple then in that kingdom that Jesus brings? Well, we will. And John shows us what he sees in Revelation 21, verse 22, just a few verses later. He said, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb Are its temple. Friends, in that city, we will not need a building for God to dwell with us because he will dwell in the midst of us through his son. As he then lives right in the middle with us, we will no longer need a building because the whole place, the entire world will be the temple as we are there in the very presence of God. Friends, this is what 2 Samuel 24 is pointing us to, a better king that offers a better sacrifice, and brings a better kingdom. Jesus, as God's covenant and forever King, paid a price on that cross and offered a sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath. And he secured for his people, a permanent and eternal dwelling place for their God in their midst. And so we end 2 Samuel, not reading a random story, but pointing to a perfect King, reminding ourselves that God is sovereign over all things that our sin demands judgment, but praise God that his mercy has intervened. And that mercy sent us a savior that would satisfy God's wrath and secure for his people a permanent dwelling for our God with his people. That's how the story ends. It's the whole point of 2 Samuel. God uses an imperfect king to point to a better king, to a sovereign king, to Jesus Christ, our king forevermore. Let's pray.